The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Thursday, November 9th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The president is in Asia and acting kind of presidential? Well, he's not comporting himself with the gentility of a statesman per se. He did exchange novelty hats with Shinzo Abe, novelty hats that would make a Branson street vendor blush, but sticking mostly to script and declining the opportunity to freelance his way into an international incident. For instance, after a speech where he actually expressed some optimism about North Korea, he was reminded by a reporter about all the times he said that negotiating with North Korea would be a waste of time. And the president said, quote, I don't want to say that. I just don't want to say that. You can understand. I can understand. I just didn't think he could. Then in China, last night, their time, he made conciliatory remarks that contrasted with his usual stump speech tough talk. Morning Joe played those two back-to-back, juxtaposed the statements on their broadcast today. We can't continue to allow China to rape our country, and that's what they're doing. It's the greatest theft in the history of the world. I don't blame China. (laughs) After all... Who can blame a country for being able to take advantage of another country for the benefit of its citizens? I give China great credit. Now, I believe Morning Joe's point was to play those two next to each other, was to show that the president was being inconsistent. I, however, take it as an effort to be diplomatic, the the Trumpian version of diplomatic. Here is the problem for Donald Trump. When the president is making news with outrageous, afactual overstatements, then other news has to subside. But when the president is being normal, all the other news comes bubbling up. And so much of the other news is bad for Trump. During the relative quiet of Trump's trip, we learned that the House version of the tax bill might actually raise taxes on the middle class. Never mind exploding the deficit. We learned that erstwhile and perhaps ersatz foreign policy flunky Carter Page performed a kind of guilt vomit in front of the Intel Committee. And we got to know this nightmare of a nominee, the White House's Council on Environmental Quality Head, Kathleen Hartnett White. Here she is being questioned by Senator Sheldon Whitehouse on Wednesday. Of the additional heat that has been captured in the atmosphere as a result of greenhouse gas emissions, do you know how much of that excess heat has been captured in the ocean? Is it more or less than 50 percent? Do you even know that? um, No. No. Okay. Um, But I believe there are differences of opinions on that, that there's not one right answer. Really? Well, really misinformed. But I was informed about her due to the Trump travel ridiculous tweet lull. One debate, if you want to call it a debate, about Trump's massive misinformation strategy went something like this. Is Trump being strategic in his use of misinformation? Even when he's caught in a lie, does it somehow help him from distracting from, I don't know, whatever you think he should be distracting from? And I think the last few days provide an answer. He's not always tactical in his tweets, 
He causes headaches for himself by making false claims that his administration has to spend a lot of capital trying to prove. He definitely has hurt his chances of getting some legislation passed by picking fights with important legislators. That's true. Those are tactics. But you know how military experts separate the tactics from the strategy? I think overall the strategy for him is sound. Brooke Gladstone's phrase is he wants to dominate the ether. And even when he's doing it in a form of malpractice, it has a certain usefulness for him. Create chaos, foreground yourself in the story, distract from, well, it doesn't matter what specifically, just distract from everything else. Now, though, two huge stories about powerful or famous men sexually abusing women broke through today, and they will be the topic of my spiel. Just when we thought we were getting to know Kathleen Hartnett White's depth of knowledge about ocean depth comes news about Louis C.K. and Roy Moore. But first, as far as recent presidential styles go, there is no more contrast to President Trump than George Herbert Walker Bush. I bet you thought I'd say Obama. But no, when you look at it, and Professor Jeffrey Engel has in depth, the hallmarks of the first Bush presidency were quiet, caution, and that very Dana Carvey word, prudence. Now, just a note, I use this interview to talk about the subject of Engel's methodically researched book. It's about Bush's foreign policy. And I didn't ask about recently surfaced reports of Bush groping women. Maybe I should have, but I didn't. And if you want to blame me for that, that's fair. But what we did talk about was, you know, the fate of the world and such. Pretty interesting. Please listen. When you look at the historical rankings of presidents, when you look at how historians rank the presidents, a couple things are apparent. One, there's a recency bias. So people don't really know, maybe bias isn't the right word, but historians don't really exactly know how to put the most recent presidents. And that's fine. They're historical. But there is a huge bias against presidents who lost an election, lost re-election, which isn't just to say one-term presidents, because Kennedy does fairly well in the rankings. So if you're assassinated in office, uh, sometimes you get a pass. But even really good presidents like uh, John Quincy Adams don't do too well in the rankings because they're one-term presidents. This all flows, I think, right into our discussion of George Herbert Walker Bush. When the world seemed new, George H.W. Bush and the End of the Cold War, written by Jeffrey Engel, is really a consideration of the world that George Bush inherited, the world he left, and what to think of his presidency afterwards. Hello, Professor Engel. Hi, good to talk to you. You start this book, it reminds me of the way that uh, Robert Caro started The uh, Power Broker, because he talked about how Moses, Robert Moses, at that point in his life, had built more roads, bridges, infrastructure, and aqueducts than any person other than a Roman emperor. And you have a line early on that asserts that at that point in history, George H.W. Bush was the most powerful man in the history of the world? In the history of the world. Okay, make your case. Well, so first of all, you have to remember the time that we're dealing with. It was at the end of the Cold War when Bush is president. We're talking about 1989 to 1993. This is a moment when we really began to talk about American hegemony, when the United States was the dominant power in the world, and not only that, but unquestioned, and not only unquestioned militarily and economically, but also, and this is the part that's hard to remember, culturally, politically, Mm -hmm. people liked 
the United States around the world. And so it, he was really at the vanguard of the American empire, if you will. And I think you can make a really good argument. I would make the argument that the American empire is probably only rivaled by Rome uh, in its imperial heyday for global power, for global influence. So from Bush's perspective, everything's going right. Yeah. And why should we necessarily want to change things? Why do we need a new vision if our vision is actually working? If there's one thing that, that we can say about George Bush is that he is nobody's revolutionary. There's a lot in this book about his relationship with Gorbachev. That wasn't the, the leader that he knew the most or the best or even had the fondest feelings for. But of course, this was the other most important leader at the world that time. How? And he believed so much in personal relationships. You know, he'd call a leader just to say hi every once in a while, because the next time when you might need him, he said, oh, yeah, this is George Bush. He calls to say hi. How did his personal relationship with Gorbachev affect how things played out in the world stage? You know, it played out fundamentally different from what Ronald Reagan had done, which Mm -hmm. is the first thing. Reagan, of course, came into office uh, espousing essentially that the Soviets were an evil empire. And by the end of his time in office, he said that that was another time, another place. That He had developed a personal trust with Gorbachev and basically thought of themselves as both revolutionaries and both friends. George Bush was simply not that trusting. Uh, yeah. He wanted to see Gorbachev actually do something, actually make good on all of his promises. He loved the rhetoric, but he was saying, you know, show me the money. One of the key problems that Bush faces, in fact, in his very first week in office, he essentially receives a memo saying that Gorbachev is likely to suffer a coup yeah. uh, because Gorbachev is doing such radical things within the Soviet Union and has built up so many political enemies. It's likely that there's going to be essentially a conservative backlash against him. Bush essentially receives that same memo every week for the next two and a half years until finally it becomes true. We have to remember that the Soviet Union, at the end of the day, was a massive empire. And communism, of course, writ large, is a massive global force. Throughout history, when empires fall, usually chaos ensues. There's very, very few, if any, examples of a great power falling without an ensuing great power war. And we have no previous examples of that dynamic playing out with 20,000 nuclear weapons in the mix. So when I look back on this period, the thing that astounds me the most is, frankly, that we survived. You know, the truism of American politics is that voters don't care about foreign affairs unless there's a war or a calamity. So it's sort of, uh, you're not going to get credit for international successes unless, you know, you're ending the Vietnam War or something like that. Exactly. And and, and there's also another important factor here to look at, which is that if Bush had won re-election in 1992, that would have meant that the Republicans would have held the White House for 16 straight years. There's basically only one example in American history where that's the case, in modern American history, which of course involved Franklin Roosevelt, World War II and the Great Depression, which you might argue are completely exigent circumstances. It's interesting. That was the first election I voted in, and I was really on the fence. I gave Bush a lot of credit, and I had a lot of questions, not moral questions, about Bill Clinton's competence, how up he was for the job. He was governor of Arkansas. We're talking about him running against a guy who was the ambassador of the United Nations, who ran the CIA, who was the ambassador to China, who was the vice president, who was the president during the fall of the Soviet Union. The greatest resume anyone has ever taken into the White House against the governor of Arkansas, and yet, in the end... I agree with most of your assessments that Bush has been given maybe a little bit of a raw deal in history, yet I'm glad that Clinton won. I can't, I almost can't believe that America was in the position where we had two can't-lose choices for president. It doesn't seem possible. Well, and a generational choice. In fact, I have to say that was actually the the first election I ever voted in, too. And I also, to be honest, voted for Bill Clinton. And I I had the opportunity to confess Where were you living then? Uh, I was actually in Ithaca, New York. Okay, so you and I were both in New York, so our votes didn't count. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It made us feel good. But it really 
yeah. felt that for the first time that our generation was getting to vote. And I confessed this to President Bush, uh, who, of course, I, I work with extensively for interviewing in this book. And at one point over lunch, I simply said, Mr. President, I have to tell you this. It's been bothering me. I didn't vote for you. Yeah. And he had a great line. He looked at me and said, you know, a lot of people didn't. Uh, yeah, so he's, he was used to that that answer. But th- but there's really a sense, I think, in which that was a transformational moment in American history, which I think I like to think of as the transition from Bush to Clinton, not only as a transition from foreign affairs to domestic affairs, but more importantly, as a transition from the World War II generation to the Vietnam generation. This was, this was a time for a new generation to take over, much as Kennedy had done uh, the generation before. Well, I think the Kennedy comparison is apt because I think there was a huge communication difference. And throughout his presidency, Bush was a poor communicator. It seems odd now that we have a president whose syntax is absolutely bonkers. And yet he said to, you know, speak to people's hearts and minds and guts. But Bush was just not that comfortable putting words together in a fluid way in front of a mic. And anything that had to do with talk shows or showing a personal touch or coming across as anything less than patrician, he wasn't good at it. No, he he really wasn't. I like to say that words were not his friends. Yeah. But one of the things that's been really fascinating about going through the archives and coming up with the new documents and seeing what was actually going on behind the scenes is that George Bush, who we both must concede and he would concede, is not a great spontaneous speaker, period. Also was trying very hard during a lot of that period to say nothing. Yes. Uh, because he knew the international tensions were such that anything that the president said, and I frankly wish this was something our current president would think about more, anything the president said reverberates around the world. So you have a man who is not a gifted natural speaker who is trying very hard to parse his words. That doesn't lead to very el- much eloquence. There are a few things there. First of all, the pull quote from the other Bush book that's out now about him and his son called The Last Republicans, the quote everyone's talking about is I don't know much about Donald Trump, but he's a blowhard. That is accurate. But also, if you know George H.W. Bush as you do, I mean, in the China book, he called Kissinger not gracious or something. Uh, he, said, he said he was not a gentleman. Not a gentleman. And you pointed out that's as bad as an insult as this guy will ever say. He'll, he never swears. So Bush calling Trump a blowhard is as pointed an attack as Bush will ever say, not just for the word itself, but Bush hated talking out of turn. He hated being loud when you didn't need to. Well, and he hated, frankly, anybody who did not have respect for the continuity of democracy and the continuity of the office. I mean, Bush, I think, almost as much as anyone, having been raised in a patrician family, having been raised with the idea of noblesse oblige, also understood innately that this was essentially a charge to hold for just a short period of time. And so consequently, he is really uncomfortable with anybody who breaks precedent in many ways by as president, demonstrating that the president is not beholden to history in many ways. And um, you've written how many George H.W. books before? Uh, I guess this is my fourth book on him, 12th book overall and fourth on him. Over time, have you come to work more closely with him? On these books, previously, yes. I mean, you know, obviously, as as time has passed on, you know, we used to work very closely. He used yeah. to actually come to our class at Bush School and and serve as the president of the United States for simulations, which, by the way, he was terrible at. Uh, <laughs> and the reason he was terrible was actually really insightful because we, as professors, wanted to put our students through the ringer. Yeah. And he just simply would not ask a difficult question of a student. And I asked him once, I said, Mr. President, you're really bad at this. Uh, And he said, well, imagine if one of those students went home and called their mother and said, the president told me I was dumb. And the president told me I made a mistake. So he understood the graciousness of him shown through. That's true. But also that's a performative aspect of the job. And he's just not a good performer. He well, it's showman, you know? Yeah, well, and I think and I think that's exactly right. But he, he just had such a great sense of 
um, where he fit into um, the patriarchal nature in many ways. And I mean that not just in gender terms, but in terms of, of class levels, yes. that he was the ultimate authority figure for those students and that it was more important for him to be supportive of them than to be critical. That critical is other people's job. How well do you know George W. Bush? Uh, not nearly as well, but work with him a little bit. Do you buy into the family dynamic, the psychology, uh, trying to outdo the father as a major motivator for him? No, not, not in any way. Well, in the sense that I think the entire family is remarkably competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it, And by the way, so is mine. I mean, the sense of trying to outdo those around you is a natural, natural factor for many people and certainly many people who go into politics. Do I think that George W. Bush pursued any particular policies because of his father? And most people point to Iraq. I think that, that's just a, a bridge too far. I mean, I'll say it. He just exhibited a lot of incuriosity uh, during his presidency and perhaps as a person. Some of that was affect. And yet some of that, I think, is fair. Uh, George W. Bush. And it seems like George H. W. Bush wasn't like that at all. He wanted to live in China and ride bicycles and learn the language and just an impressive thirst for knowledge. People are different. But is there an explanation for why that trait didn't pass on to the son? George W. Bush, I think, was equally interested in history, but didn't want anybody to know it. Yeah. Because the times had changed and the whole affect of his running for office was built upon a Western, a Texan, a Southern mentality in which government and elitism and frankly, his own resume would be things that voters would rebel against. There's a a famous story about George W. Bush, who, of course, lost his first and only attempt at running for Congress. Uh, And he said afterwards, well, I'm never going to be out Texaned again. My boots will be bigger. My hats will be bigger. My my twang will be louder. Um, And that was what he thought voters would want. Have you read the other Bush bio that's out about the two Bushes or have you read about it? I have not. I have, I have to say, um, Mark Uptegrove, the author of that, he and I have, have worked together and known each other for, for over a decade now. And I have often said to him that that was a book which I would never have had the guts to write. Uh-huh. Um, and, and frankly, it's, it's a different kind of book than mine. Mine is really a, a history written in documents. His is really, a, 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 as I understand it, a, a piece that's about the personal relationship. The coverage of that book, you know, it's played as like an inter-Republican squabble, the old Republicans, the last two Republican presidents against the new one. Is there any context you could give to that? Donald Trump, I think we cannot lose sight of the fact and should not lose sight of the fact going forward that when he ran for president, he didn't run against the Democrats as much as he also ran against the Republicans. It was an insurgent civil war within the Republican Party that he managed to, to wrestle. So it's no surprise, if you will, that the previous Republican office holders for that party, given that Trump ran essentially against their legacy, would find his, his message distasteful and his style distasteful. I sense that Donald Trump wants to make every political question essentially a personal question about him. And every political fight is a personal fight, whether you like him or not. Um, He's always talking about his ratings. He's not talking about necessarily um, the success of his policies. George H.W. Bush was really instructed throughout his entire life not to ever use the word I. He was the figurehead for the government. He was the we. The we is what mattered, that we are moving forward. So in essence, um, I think what's really more important than whether or not we have a blustering or a quiet president is whether we have a president that thinks of himself as the commander of himself and that his party and his success is the nation's success or whether he thinks the nation's success is his responsibility. Jeffrey A. Engel is the author of When the World Seemed New, George H.W. Bush and the End of the Cold War. He is the founding director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. Thank you, Professor Engel. Good to talk to you. 
And now the spiel. Whether you're a liberal vocal supporter of Hillary Clinton, who is widely hailed as the most brilliant voice in your field, or if you're a Republican senatorial candidate who's a reactionary throwback to a benighted age, today you got some measure of comeuppance. Obviously, the charges against Roy Moore are more serious if less shocking to a certain sector of, say, the just-listening audience than the charges against Louis C.K. The disgraced former state judge and now newly disgraced Senate candidate, it was reported in a thorough story in the Washington Post, dated, could you call it that? He probably would, dated girls in their mid to early teens while he was in his 30s. And one instance included sexual activities, if not actual sexual intercourse. Then there's Louis C.K., long rumored to have masturbated in front of female comics. And it was reported today in the New York Times that he masturbated in front of female comics. So I use the word comeuppance, and to me that's what the Roy Moore thing feels like, a comeuppance. But the Louis C.K. thing, to me it feels like a letdown. It's not like I didn't believe the charges, but the distance between rumor and solid reporting might seem thin, but it's pretty tangible. It's tangible enough to turn an idea into a reality. The people of Alabama will have a direct chance to render judgment on the expounder of Old Testament justice. Fans, or maybe one-time fans of Louis C.K., will have a less direct route. The stakes with Roy Moore, in the real sense, are, are higher. He's trying to be a senator. It was never a good or even sane idea to nominate this guy in the first place. But if the charges are true, it turns from a profoundly stupid idea into a really hateful one, an evil one. Anyone paying attention already knew who Roy Moore was. This gives him another dimension of ickiness. But for me, and I'm guessing for you, we didn't really have to change our previously held beliefs about Roy Moore. We just opened a new category. But for Louis, it's something different. I have no personal interactions with the man. I have seen him do comedy in small clubs and large venues. But most of the other famous abusers whose names have come forward, a lot of them I did have personal interactions with. Michael Oreskes of NPR, journalist Mark Halperin, Lockhart Steele of Vox. In some cases, the allegations against them didn't necessarily surprise me. And in none of those cases did I say, wow, that's really disappointing. But that's not the case with Louis. I never met the man, but I'm kind of disappointed. I do have to say, I have so much respect for the women who went forward and put their names on the record. Uh, a comedian named Rebecca Corey and the comedy team of Dana and Julia. I know Dana and Julia well. I did know them when they were living in Chicago before... They had a hit show at the Aspen Comedy Festival, which led to the incident in which Louis is said to have masturbated in front of them. And you know what? Thinking about it, I put some stock in their contention that the interaction hurt their careers. I kind of thought they were poised for a big breakout. Their uh, Aspen Comedy show was really well received. It was hysterical. They stole some scenes in Adam Sandler movies. And they're hilarious in person. They were kind of like Abby and Alana 10 years earlier, but it never happened for them. And their contention that having engendered the wariness of Louis C.K. and his powerful manager, their contention that that could have hurt their careers, I buy it. It's at least plausible. So to the people of Alabama, unless this story is somehow debunked, it is up to you by your vote to show what it means if you say we're upholding Christian values. And to fans of Louis C.K., like me, it's up to us 
to sort through the myriad complexities of how to think of a brilliant but apparently abusive man. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Bienname is using President Trump's trip to speak with caution about his usual hobby horse of people who call chimps monkeys. Mary Wilson, just producer, while Trump is in Asia, will not take the bait every time someone says daylight savings time. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Now that the president is reining himself in, he thought he would pause from his ongoing textual analysis of the Twitter feed of Sheriff David Clark. It is compelling. The gist, breaking news, Paul Rudd has not been accused of sexual assault. Ventriloquist Willie Tyler not facing charges of sexual abuse. Jerry Stiller has not been accused of lewd behavior. I thought it might be easier just going in this direction. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.